Today in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have a special feature for you, captured in August of 2019 at Laguna Seca, sat down with my friends Tommy Kendall, sports car champion supreme, and his long-standing, formative year assembling, championship-winning crew chief and chief mechanic, Dan Binks, two of these guys who got together believe 86 1986 also 1987 running together in imsa's gtu category with a mazda rx7 something that as you will hear in our 24 or so minute sit down really propelled these two to amazing careers this is where it all started for them so it was great to sit down with these guys as they i don't want to say restored the car but at least got it back in running order and brought it out for the first time since its last race in 1987. So that was a really amazing thing. 30-ish years later, old girls back on track, the number 75 Mazda RX-7 with its original driver, its original crew chief, and it was just a delight. So getting these guys to sit down, do a little podcast, and which we also captured in video, which you might enjoy that as well. It's on our Marshall Pruitt podcast Facebook page. It's also on my Marshall Pruitt YouTube page. Uh, delightful conversation with these men, emotional conversation as well as we close. So just wanted to share this with you to celebrate the sport that we love with two folks that have definitely given us decades of amazing memories. All here brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Off we go with Tommy Kendall and Dan Binks. Gents, we've gotten the band back together, the Binks and Kendall road tour. I don't know if you've got t-shirts made up, Monterey 2019. The fact that we have the two of you back together with the vehicle that started this lifelong friendship, this glorious red, white, and blue Malibu Grand Prix sponsored Mazda RX-7, Tommy, that you used in IMSA in GTU to build your name that captured the attention of so many manufacturers. How did we get here to this car coming back here with your original crew chief as well? Well, I mean, I ended up with the car shortly after I drove it. Um, My dad bought it from Clayton Cunningham and loaned it back to him even though I would, when I left the team. And then when, when I graduated from UCLA, my dad gave me the car and it's just been stashed. And so I didn't really have any interest in the vintage stuff for a long time, but slowly when you get a little older, you start slowing down and you're like, that looks like fun. And then uh, when I had to get, move all the cars out of where they were, uh, I called Banks and said, I got a problem. He said, I can send anything you want here. And, and he, as soon as he gets them, he kind of assesses them. He just can't you know, not do anything. And so kind of assessed him with an eye towards eventually running them. And uh, it's a slow process because the sponsor, namely me, is a little unreliable. Every time he'd call me, he'd say, hey, I found a gearbox. And he'd say, I'd say, how much? He'd say, 7,500 bucks. I'm like, oh, can we wait for another one? He says, there won't be another one. Oh. I said, okay. <laughs> and so it, it was as much as I could afford. And then when this was announced that this was going to be IMSA, we kind of marked this on the calendar so we got to make sure the car's together. And, and it probably still wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for John Doonan. John Doonan stepped up um, in, you know, both personally and professionally. Professionally, it made sense for Mazda, but personally, it was one of the cars that got him interested. He's the and best. So, um, you know, it's it, it's it's a huge 
least significant car even before I drove it. So anyways, that's how it got here. And, and that's also how Danny and I met. Dan, your son, Phil, is, is sitting off camera here. And I'm just trying to think if Tommy's dad is giving him an IMSA GTU car for graduation. Should I ask what? Uh, I mean, that's a heck of a gift. How do you match that? What, what did Phil get? Uh, Phil has a pretty good hot rod. He's got a 800 horsepower S10. Ah, okay. And uh, <laughs> I think it was way more than $15,000 that your dad yeah. gave for that RX-7. I think the engine was 15000 oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. My wife will find out now. So most folks today see you and immediately think of the color yellow and a V8 that destroys Richter scales. For those who didn't know, the fact that no, actually your first really grounding getting to become the crew chief that we know, dealing with what I think they, we call it a 1.3 liter uh, twin rotor 13B little spinny tinny thing. You want to talk about visuals that don't match what we expect today with you at, at Corvette Racing, but tell folks about this opportunity because not everyone gets to learn their craft working at the very top of the sport. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I grew up, my dad raced cars, and uh, I worked on bug-eyed sprites and Fiats, and, and the RX-7 really wasn't too much out of the, the norm for myself. And uh, one thing that's you know fairly amazing, at, at the age of 22, I was the crew chief, and nowadays that would never, ever happen. Um, but I had worked on my dad's car since I was a child. Uh, I remember him putting me in front of the seat because I couldn't push on the brake pedal to help him bleed the brakes. You know, it was just, that's what we did. Every night when he got home from work, we had dinner and we went and worked on the race car. And, and that was from about eight years old till, uh, till I moved out to work for Phil Conti. It almost sounds like there was some family planning in the Binks household based on all right, so I'm going to need a kid to help with bleeding the brakes. I'm going to need someone. To, all right, let's have, how many kids should we have in the family? It sounds like dad was thinking about his own little pit crew here. So, Tommy, knowing that your interaction with this beautiful car started with Clayton Cunningham racing, then evolved from there, seeing it now, it is not a 100-point concours going to Pebble Beach, quote, restoration and I can't tell you how much I love and appreciate that. Because while there are some cars, vintage cars, you look at and say, of course, this should be a museum piece, share with folks how a 1980s Mazda RX-7 in IMSA GTU, whatever a workhorse is, those things were quadruple that, pounded into submission. I like the fact that you've kind of preserved what this car was really meant to do. Well, a lot of race cars, when they're done with their pro career, you know, they get sold to a privateer and then they get changed a little and repainted and changed a little, changed a little. This one never went through that because when it, after it was done with its real career, its factory career, it just stopped and it was almost like preserved. Not And uh, so the stickers on the door are the original Sebring and Daytona stickers on the door. The foil that is on the rear spoiler lip is the same foil tape that was there. And, uh, and so it's just, you know, it, it's like it just was, you know, like Rip Van Winkle put to sleep and then brought back. And, uh, you know, it's it bugs a little few things bug me like uh, the, the muffler that's on it was not the muffler we ran with. It was a big kind of obscene looking thing. But this one was an early generation with a huge hook on the back. Yeah. And when Clayton delivered the car, he took the. 
took the good one off. And the car wants to get out, apparently, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, so little things like that. But it's, I mean, I was looking at the Switch console when I got in before my race, and I realized that so, some of the pieces have been changed a zillion times. But that, those, that Switch console and most of those Switches have been in every one of those races that that car was in. That steering wheel, that window net. We'd, there's a picture of Baldwin in the car. Same window net, same rivet, same, you know, it's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. It didn't just fall apart. Yeah. And what about for you, Dan, seeing this car that you put so many hours into and that had so much success, share with us the feelings of not just seeing it back out running quickly, obviously, as well, but the fact that if you were to close your eyes and take yourself back to 1980-whatever, you probably know the blueprint of where it all is because it's still that car you know it's kind of amazing right at we we kind of did it at the last minute trying to get this thing all ready and i took it all apart and there was trays of nuts and bolts and stuff and and it was actually like okay i know where that bolt goes and i know where this bolt goes and that's actually taking up room in my brain right <laughs> why would it still be there that i knew where this bolt went in the car it's like you know uh I don't know. Sometimes I wish I could forget that stuff, but, but other times it's cool to just take it apart and say, okay, I remember this. I remember why we did it. And uh, then I got to remember, I got to get back to work because we've run out of time. So uh, <laughs> we were definitely under the gun on this one. Uh, the truck driver said he was going to come at 11 and I think he came at three and literally we were just finishing it. So uh, really cool to be able to do it. It uh, would have been nice to have a little bit more time to do it, but uh you know, like you said, a lot of these cars you walk around and you see and they're way overdone. This one's <laughs> the opposite of that. So uh, kind of cool. Watching you climb into the car, Tommy, was fun for me. Having seen you do that originally back in the day. I don't know if you or I or Dan are as, as bendy and flexible as we were decades ago. Tell us about the muscle memory and the other things involved with climbing back in, firing it up, and starting to do laps at a track that you know so well. What was it like? Well, just little things like the throttle travel is literally about an inch in that car, which is good for a guy whose ankle doesn't bend a lot, you know. So, um, but just the way the, the the brake pedal feel, the steering feel, the steering feel is unlike and not in a good way anything I've ever driven. Um, at the end of this car's life, it was it was decidedly suboptimal, and and we just dealt with it. Um, there's there's actually a mark a thing you can see on the car on the rear fenders of the car. There's some some waves. And I remember it was mid-Ohio 87, and I was always complaining about the car being loose in the higher speed stuff, and there's just nowhere you could, nothing else we could do. And they porta-powered in the trailer overnight. They bent the back of the car, and you can see where the top of the fenders are, when it started to bend, there's a, there's a crease in them. And they, they put some, <laughs> and, and I'd never noticed those then, but I, I remember that story. Ah. I looked here, and you can see those yeah. things. And so, uh, you know, the, the way you, like, drive, you know, there's there's so much play in the steering because of the steering box you know you got to set it and then if you need to go a little bit the other way you got to go about a, an eighth of a turn to find tension the other way to apply it there and then you know and so you're going between that free spot and so all that stuff kind of came back much like him with what i know what this bolt does i know what i have to do here a little bit 
I love the chassis set up by Porta Power. That's an interesting one. <laughs> well, that was back in the day when you could actually make changes like that. That uh, you know, you didn't have the BOP or you didn't have the, all the templates, all the templates, or the you know, other, even the other teams. They didn't really care about what you did. They they went and worked on their car, and we went and worked on our car. And that that was just one of the things that we tried to do. We moved the wing up about a half an inch, and and uh, they never check it in tech back in those days. It was just run what you brung. Tommy, watching the in-car stuff that we did from, uh, I think, Friday, uh, man, that was fun to watch. A, it did indeed look like you were in a 2.2-mile fist fight with the car each lap, yep. and it was getting in some good licks on you, too. Watching you come into the corkscrew opposite lock didn't look like that was intentional. It was fun. You're tapping into your, your inner rally cross driver, but... Man, not only were you hauling the mail, but you were having to manage a vehicle that if you wanted to go straight, it was choosing many other axes to work from, possibly vertical as well. Is that dance enjoyable at all now? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it took, a, you know, it's not comfortable at first. And so it, it took a while to sort of settle in. You know, one of the places, and I asked Binks after that session, the first session, uh, I said, does this thing have bump steer? He says, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't get it out. And so that made sense. The compression in six and then all the, you know, the changes in camber, not even the drop off, but just the bowl at the first part of the, the uh, corkscrew dropping down. I mean, that's, that was uh, putting a bunch of inputs into the car that, you don't want and you don't see in today's car and i mean even if you ran that car today with the same pieces it'd be better you know uh you'd figure out how to engineer some of it out but that's probably some of the coarseness is some of what's missing missing because it's not easy to do and it tends to separate people dan so we see you doing your normal again amazing work with the corvette racing team your son phil the two of you have been fun rivals with him working at uh, Ford Chip Ganassi Racing. Know that the two of you do a lot of fun things in your private lives with cars and whatnot. What's it like to be here turning wrenches and running a car that was just like Tommy, really a big foundational part of your career with your son? I think it's cool. I think he uh, he looks at that car and says, "Man, what a what a pile of junk!" You know, because you were horrible back then, <laughs> yeah, Dad. Yeah, you right. you <laughs> put your name on this. You actually did that. It's horrible. You know, compared to the cars that we work on now, that car is you know prehistoric. You know, uh, the Ford and the Corvette both are you know phenomenal race cars with sensors and you know the top quality of everything. Back then, we didn't have any money. We didn't you know. New brakes were a big deal. Trying to keep the engine running was a big deal. You know, uh, we couldn't afford to change gears because we couldn't afford the gears to, to change to. You know, now you don't even think about that. The, the gearbox budget that we have now would be three or four times what the whole year budget was on that RX-7. Good Lord. Dan mentioned sensors, Tommy. <laughs> I believe there's one primary. It's an analog tachometer, I think. Uh, knowing that your driving career, especially late or 90s, 2000s, moving on, you know, even 2010s with the Viper program, you're just blanketed with instrumentation. How much fun or how much of an adjustment is it to climb back into something where you have no expectation of plugging in anything other than the 
starter battery. You don't plug into this car. You are the data system. Is it fun as well, maybe tapping back into that and giving Dan whatever feedback you can to make changes? I mean, that was one of the things, honestly, back in the day was was one of the sources of anxiety when I drove this car. At, there was 17 gauges in that car. This one has almost all of them. There's a couple missing. But, um, you you know, you were the data acquisition. And they wanted, and I remember thinking, sometimes you're driving so hard, you're not looking at the gauges, right? And I'd come in, and I, I would have looked at the tack. And they want to know what all of them are. And so it was, it was sort of like, okay, each session, you better get a reading off every one of these gauges. And then also a lot of them were, they wanted red, the exhaust gas temperature, the, the, um, the tack, and then the airbox pressure, they wanted red at the peak of fifth gear, which would be right before the brake zone here. It'd be the dip at Road <laughs> Atlanta. And so, you know, and I could get one a lap. I said, I can't get you all five every lap. Right when you're and praying so, to the Lord, we want you right, to also we want you to get document. these readings. And so, um, it, but it was important because, you know, the water temp, these things were really sensitive on water temp. You know, the, our failures at Daytona had to do with, you know, when it got cold at night, too cool or too lean with the, you know, and we ended up the second year we had a mixture knob, which is why the exhaust gas temp was in there. So you were the data acquisition. And so we're not, we're not doing much in the way of debriefs. We're checking tire pressures and, and, and you just want to make sure it runs. And true to form, our, the only race, I, I crashed out at Mid-Ohio 86 and we had a DNF at Daytona. But I want to say those are the only races we DNF'd. Oh, and then Sebring, we crashed out in 87 with, in the pits with uh, the 962. But, you know, in 34 races, and so that's what, that's what, you know, won us the championships, really. And it's same thing here. This thing's run like a Swiss watch. I was worried about the, you know, oil pressure. And, and Mink says, you can't hurt it. Go. It's fine. Yeah, it's going to be fine. Tommy, let's stay on the driving aspect for a moment. Are there any races from the the almost three dozen that you did in the car that stand out from a either personal achievement standpoint or just value? I mean, my first win, which was here in 86, because that was big. I, uh, Danny said it was good from the start when he said his wife said, your career is over working with this kid. Uh, I was at, Bob Reed was supposed to drive the car, so I was doing Daytona and Sebring, and I ran uh, Miami in my dad's older ARC 7 that they prepped, and I finished fourth, which was the best sprint finish I'd ever had in IMSA, and Biggs came up to me after the race, he said, how was I? I said, that was awesome. He goes, that's not going to cut it, and I was just like, what? oh, um, uh, and I, I was like, okay, I got to raise my game, and by the time we got to Road Atlanta, I think I was, uh, I ran second or third at Road Atlanta. We finished second at Riverside and then came here and, and I won. I passed uh, Mandeville uh, going into the corkscrew kind of midway through the race kind of thing. And uh, so that one stands out as really kind of a, a real milestone. It was only at that point that Mazda committed to me for the rest of the year. Um, and other ones that, you know, we were up against newer, better cars. And so we had to really execute and so places like columbus on street courses and these were old street courses that had barriers inside and out armco on you know every, and so there was no fia curb on the inside where you could be an inch or two off that's why you always had the port of power with you huh dan yeah that's right <laughs> and running over manhole covers and all kinds of things that back in those days it was pretty pretty hairy yeah and so you know i really um got a lot better in those two years in terms of just running really hard, having a team that was, you know, a lot of attention and focus and pressure. Um, you know, so I would say those some, 
probably Columbus Street Race, you know, winning somewhere like that. Elkhart Lake, we had one uh, year uh, where there's a ton of rain. And I want to say they told me there was one race. Well, Charlotte, they told me not to get out at the pit stop um, with Bob Reed. Bob Reed was supposed to be my, my teammate. And Bink said to me before the race, he said, don't get out at the stop. I said, what do you mean? He goes, just don't get out. And so I come in and Reed's there with his helmet on to get in. And I just looked and I just kept looking straight ahead. <laughs> and, and Sorry about your feelings, but you yeah. know, in those days. Was Clayton, was Clayton okay with that? I, I think Clayton was good with it. The, <laughs> the uh, quote, belts are stuck. Wink, you know, wink, nudge, nudge. I think, you know, a lot of times back in those time frames, people were okay with finishing fourth and, and uh, we weren't. We were definitely not okay with finishing fourth. We expected to win every race, and we worked between the races as hard as we could, and we expected the driver to do the same, and, and that's what really gelled for, for all of us. If we all do this 100%, we can win most of the races, and we did. Let's close on this, guys. So we're here, obviously, 50th anniversary of IMSA. You two are here contributing with this beautiful car. The Malibu Grand Prix livery just tickles everything that's right inside of me having loved it and spent most of my profits as a young race car mechanic going there pretending i'm going to be here in senna one day so this car was monumentally important for the two of you and the careers you would go on to have share with us how this union between the two of you really did become something that continued and carried on for many years afterwards. I mean, that's something that I think is really amazing too. Happens to drivers all the time. Don't always get your crew chief and driver who elevate. You want to start? Yeah. I mean, for me, I knew from this right away that that first year um, when I won the championship, I, I didn't, you know, I brought some sponsorship that year, but I got to keep the prize money at the end of the year. I spent all of that prize money, and I bought Rolex watches. I bought myself one, and I bought four for all the crew guys. And I did the same for my Firehawk team. And then the next year when we won the title again, I did the same thing. And I knew how important they were to, you know, not DNFing races. And I, I looked around even then, and, and that was unusual. It's, it was more unusual then to have a perfect finishing record than it is now. And so when I signed with Chevrolet, the first thing after I got my deal done is how can I get Binks and as many of the other guys there as I could. And Binks at first wasn't what didn't go, come. He st stayed with Clayton. And then, um, you know, just things that talk about serendipity. Sherry, who he would become his wife, grew up in Brighton, Michigan. And Cars and Concepts was in Brighton, Michigan. Mm. And so, you know, Getting him to go there, that was when it became clear that, you know, there was a, a serious bond. And then we, we won GTU and Trans Am together there. And from that point on, everywhere I went, the first thing I did after I got there was to try to get him to come. And by the end, it was, it was four or five guys that were moving with me. And so I just always put a, a huge priority on them. I remember Jack Baldwin saying something to me, uh, you know, f four or five years into my career where I'd had multiple, he says, you know, you're the luckiest guy I've ever seen. I remember thinking, yeah, it's just luck. It just all happens, you know? <laughs> and, but, it, it, you know, things like that and thinking about that. I, I obviously thought I brought a lot to the table driving-wise, but um, I didn't want to drive for anybody else. And post-career, um, he's always looked out for me. And I get choked up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, funny to bring the luck thing up from Jack. That would be a comment from Jack Baldwin. I, I like Jack, but that's a comment that he would make. I don't believe in luck luck's for people that aren't prepared all the hard work at the shop by all of the people the truck drivers the engine guys all those guys 
getting that car put together so a guy like Tommy can drive it and work his magic is no different than, you know, uh, why do the best Formula One teams win? Why do the drag race teams Why does John Force win? Because he wants to win and doesn't let anything get in the way. He doesn't let his feelings get in the way. doesn't let money get in the way. He figures out some way to get the sponsorship to do the right job to win the races. And that's what we've done, and our friendship has been overwhelming. You know, I, uh, when Tommy got hurt, I probably would have quit uh, racing. I, I was devastated uh, that we'd, we'd hurt, you know, our driver, best friend, you know. Uh, but Tommy said, no way, man, we're getting a new race car, and I'll, and I'll be ready. And, uh, you know, it was hard on his family. It was hard on my family. It was hard on Caroline, you know. Uh, it was hard on all of us to go to Indianapolis and see him the deal there, and uh, and you think, wow, do I really want to do this anymore? And uh, Tommy said, we're doing it, and uh, we won a lot of races after that. And uh, I I thank God that that uh, he didn't give up because I would have, and uh, and I don't give up very well. But but mm-hmm. uh, luckily for me, we were able to race a lot of races after that, and I had been able to win a lot of championships with the same mentality as I had when we first started working on this RX7. I think the coolest thing to come out of this combination of the two of you, which folks have known, it's not a secret, but race cars, exhaust fumes, champagne spraying, we, we know that. There's real love. There's, been a, you know, there's a lot of love that has driven this relationship that's produced so many things. And the fact that it can be presented in the congregation forms around an old rusty crusty <laughs> Mazda RX-7 that kind of launched it all I think that's it's a beautiful thing guys it it happens I, I was driving by an old slab-sided Chevy truck and I'm, I'm like I was thinking why do why do things like that make you feel good why do you say oh man look at that thing and it's exactly that it's it's almost a it's a symbol and it's sort of it it's sort of a reminder it's like hearing hearing a song you see that car and, and the, the memories come, come flooding back, so, which is, you know, the car by itself, if it didn't have the history, it's just, it's like, no different, you know, it's just an object, right? But it's, you imbue it with all those memories and feelings and, and so forth. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Thanks for spending some time, guys. All right. Thanks for doing what you do. So were we recording? Just kidding. <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, I'm not, I'm not, sorry, I'm not, I'm not, low humor. No, no, no. <laughs> and thanks again to Tommy and Dan for sitting down. It was a fun and powerful conversation. If this is your first time listening to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, I urge you to visit marshallpruittpodcast.com where we have all 800 plus episodes waiting for your audio enjoyment. And we captured a bunch of other interviews during this August visit to Laguna Seca for the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion. And I hope to get these out here soon for you. 